listening to Unraveled, the Adverb Podcast. Welcome to Unraveled, the Artwork Podcast. I am Bernard Vienna, independent curator and director of Artwork. On Unravel, we engage with contemporary art and its resonance in social and environmental debates. For this eighth episode, I'm very pleased to welcome Andreas Greiner to the studio. He is, in my opinion, one of the most exciting artists working on environmental topics today. His art draws on biology, biotechnology, and questions the impact of humans on other living forms. Whether he is presenting a giant 3D sculpture of the skeleton of a chicken, images of a forest made by artificial intelligence, or luminescent algae as part of installations, living beings are omnipresent in his work. You can find details and images of all the pieces we are discussing today on our website art-work.ch. As you will see, in a moment which our societies are dealing with a global pandemic and with the urgency of the climate crisis, Andreas Greiner is well-placed to provide insight on the changes in our ecosystems and the role of art in reflecting and commenting on these. So welcome, Andreas, and thank you for having accepted our invitation. And first of all, how are you dealing with uh, the current situation? Um, first of all, thank you very much for this uh, generous introduction and uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, the current situation, I think at the moment, personally, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty well. I, um, I feel like I um, have, uh, at the moment still, I have less stress. I have um, less uh, deadlines and um, exhibition to be finished within a short amount of time. Um, so I actually enjoy to have this little bit of freedom. Um, I'm, I'm making a personal garden, watching these little uh, salads and tomatoes uh, growing. And um, I'm still working like I was working before, but um, just maybe a little bit slower. But beyond my personal reach, I, I mean, I think it's very hard for me to to see this situation from the outside because it's all so fresh and we are just in the middle of, um, of a radical change in society and in, in our daily life routines. Um. I would like to start with a question on your piece Monument for the 308 because many scientists have advanced the theory that one of the main reasons that the outbreak of COVID-19 is so severe is that human beings are increasingly interventionist with regards to other life forms and the environment. For the, for the listeners who don't know this work, uh, you should imagine a skeleton of a broiler chicken that is seven meters high, and it looks like a dinosaur skeleton, like the ones you might see in natural history museums. But the skeleton you reproduced, Andreas, for your work is originally a kind of oversized chicken, biotechnologically conceived to produce an extra amount of meat. Could you tell us more about this work and, and maybe uh, starting by explaining the title Monuments for the 308? 
Um, a monument is a reference to the tradition of public sculpture, like a monument to um, to honor something, to make something, um, uh, to expose something, to put something on a pedestal, to make something, um, to say this is remarkable for society. Um, and a 308 actually comes from the type of chicken that um, has been scanned and um, 3D printed, or its bones have been 3D printed for this. 308 comes from Ross 308, which is um, the type of chicken that is one of the most abundant type of meat chicken on this world and in the current food industry. But actually, I think this culture has its origin in a, in a living chicken no? called Heinrich mm -hmm. that you saved or, from a poultry farm and uh, gave as a piece of art with a contract no? uh, to a farm for children. But for, for, can you maybe expl explain first a bit like this process, like why saving this chicken? Yeah, I mean, I, in, my, in my artwork, I, I really like to uh, follow questions that I that are actually also um, a per personal dilemma for me. And one of my personal dilemmas is the question of um, what to eat and why to eat it. And um, so I was very curious about the type of broiler chicken that I used for um, for food. And, uh, and I kind of like wanted to have a personal glimpse behind the curtains of the food industry. And um, so what I did, I went to a chicken farm and I bought one chicken of this type, Ross 308, that would have normally landed in a supermarket as a piece of meat. And then I brought this chicken um, to a, a children's zoo and I convinced the children's zoo to take care of it. And to actually also, I made a contract with the children's zoo that this chicken is going to be a living artwork and also not only like an like a like an artwork it also became a personality I, i gave it a name heinrich then what was very sad for me is that heinrich died quite early like one or two months after i brought brought him to the children's zoo and out of this disappointment actually i think that was also like a very strong initial like initiator for for the monument for the 308 because um actually i mean i was very naive i just wanted to give a better life or like a second life or like a kind of like utopian um, paradise situation to to the spoiler chicken which actually turned out to be um not so realistic as i thought you have defined uh, with ursula strubele the concept of a living sculpture was this chicken so to say a living ch sculpture who died or what what do you mean by that what i kind of like thought was interesting um to to relate this to um to especially this type of culturally produced um chicken the um the the broiler chicken is that the quality of the broiler chicken is that it actually wouldn't exist without us humans. It is a cultural product. So, so those chickens, actually, they can't, they can't sustain themselves. They, they would not be um, able to live without us. Um, they usually only live for one generation. And if, if um, um, like a chicken would get older than Heinrich, for example, and live to the, uh, to the time when it is actually um, mature enough to reproduce. The children, actually, they would lose the qualities of, of the parents. So if you say like the broiler chicken or the meat chicken has um, these two qualities, like strong legs and a lot of meat. So strong legs to carry a lot of meat. Then maybe the children would have like weak legs and a lot of meat or, or not a lot of like strong legs, but no meat. So these qualities would divide again. It's like a, like the genetically, um, industry genetically protected um, gene corn, for example. Um, and, and this 
kind of like same mechanism is built into these chickens. So you have always to buy a new chicken, new baby chicken as a as as a farmer. So yes, yes, okay. you can't reproduce it yourself. It's a it's a it's a kind of like industrial. Um, um, it's 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 a specialized um, industry for once uh, making the the baby chicken and then growing the chicken into meat. Okay, so but like speaking about life forms, when was actually the first time that you worked with living beings for an artwork? Oh, the first time um, that was probably very early in my studies, um, and that was uh, connected to flies. Um, I. Um, had one project I called Flygate, and that was an utopian idea to to change the architecture of all buildings around the world and to make them permeable. So to make them also to to kind of like introduce a cat door for flies. So all these insects. I mean, I don't know if you if if you if you know that when you are more like in rural areas where there's more insects. Usually in the kitchen, um, um, there's a lot of flies that constantly try to go through the window because they don't understand that the window is a wall. And they go like against the window and they don't get out. And I and I always watched my um, grandma of like hitting the flies and being very happy for like each fly that she killed. But my mother was actually doing the opposite. She would um, try to bring those flies outside and um, to save them. And so for me, it's a kind of like first ethical dilemma I was confronted to. And my kind of solution would be to, to introduce like an automa automated process that actually saves the life of the, of the fly um, and making the window permeable so that the fly can go through the window. So that was then a really early artwork. So already yeah. in, your, in, your, in your study, you mean, but like... I, I think you told me once that you studied as well medicine before studying art here in Berlin. Why actually did you did you make this choice like then to become an artist? No, uh, finally, I, I actually uh, made first decision um, to, to study art and to become like an artist or to, to follow the path of an artist um, life. I um, first studied figurative sculpture. And um, I studied um, for two and a half years. I studied in shortly in San Francisco and then in Florence. And I was teaching artistic anatomy. And I was very much um, interested in this um, in this concept of being able to explain every little sh shadow on the human body through a reason of being a bone, a tissue, a tendon, like um, to find explanations for what I was seeing and what I was trying to, to copy in these early studies. And then the medical studies were just um, a natural, like further investigation into anatomy and into the human body at the time. When it began, the planetary atmosphere had become polluted with a broadband spectrum of cypress, masked as a radiation and noise. What would have happened to humanity if it had been in possession of sensory appendages incorporating these signals into its sensual faculties? Would the noise be blinding, deafening, stunning? Would the clouds of information have an aspect analogous to a color, timbre, touch, odor? A text message, a tingling. A photo sent through 4G, a sensory bomb. Wireless, a blizzard. Perhaps it would be an extrasensorial dimension.
Yeah. So I think it's an interesting bridge. So from the human to the animal or to the non-human, so to say. Because after having spoken of this monumental chicken, it is also so important to stress that you have an interest in microscopic organisms as well, right? Okay, in Frankfurt, we presented a sound installation for the first time. It was a collaboration with uh, Tyler Friedman that you did, and it features a text read aloud by multiple voices. In the center of the room was an aquarium filled with water and algae that became bioluminescent when stimulated by the vibrations from the speaker installed below. They lit up as if they were reacting to the story and the music. And first, I would like to ask you about the medium itself, the algae. We, know, we now see artists like Annika Yee also using those algaes in her installations, but um, you were one of the first to do so, I think. What about, the, what about them inspired you? What is your relationship with them? Yeah, so to be honest, um, I didn't discover uh, those algae alone, actually. Um, the long story of um, the algae is that I, in my early studies with um, Julien Chayer, we had a common room that we completely blackened and we wanted to work with light. So we, we just had, the, we had a room and a residency and we had um, an exhibition coming up and we had this idea of working with light. And then... What we discovered actually in this very dark environment that we finally were able to build, that any light source would be so strong that it wouldn't look good. So I, our first idea was, and that's a very brutal idea, I'm not sure that I um, would have been happy to realize this idea, but our idea was to make a hamster power plant and then to have hamsters make electricity for a light bulb, like a, like a bicycle light bulb. It doesn't sound like me, but I am, to be honest, this is a little anecdote. This is from like where I come from. And then we discovered, no, this looks really, doesn't really look good. And I was saying, no, we can't, we can't work with hamsters, those poor hamsters. Like, what do we do afterwards? Like, do we throw them away? Do we give them, like, where do we get all these children that take care of their hamsters? Like, what do we do? And so we found, um, we found an online shop and, and, and there we could um, actually um, order those algae and then they arrived. And what happened um, is that actually it was too complex for us to um, take care of the algae or to like kind of work with them like in a very professional way. Um, I, I, we managed to kind of have an exhibition and to show it, but it was not really working that perfectly. But I, at this moment, I just really at the first glance fell in love with the algae and I thought I want to learn how to work with them and I want to kind of be able to sustain them. And, and, and then I just kept on working with them. I like to come back to this installation. In Frankfurt, you choose to present this sound installation close to an image of a tumor cell from your series Hybrid Mater, a series made of photographs and a film taken with a scanning electron microscope, which displayed foremost images of synthetic cells. How would you describe the process which allowed you to turn these biological processes into art? So the first question about the um, about the chicken, um, the chicken had this quality of being half half artificial and half natural so we have we have an organism that is co-created by human activity and human culture and this aim of um, um, of industry or like humans um, to control life or to understand life and also um, to make it serve or act according to their needs is uh, is strongly followed also in the research of scientists so um, the next step for me after into in investigating into um, into the chicken and the quality of the chicken as being like uh, something that is clearly in between what we traditionally 
traditionally would understand as being artificial or being natural, you could say like it is maybe a biofact, biology and artifact at the same time. That then led me to um, to this discovery that there was a scientist or there is a scientist, uh, he's called Craig Venter, who's very advanced at biotechnology and he's one of the leading figures um, in research of also um, genetic codes and decoding the genetic code and, um, and then actually also resampling and um, putting it back together. And he touted or he claimed to have created the first artificial light form in um, around 2010, 2000, uh, 2013, something like that. Uh, it's, it's a multi-step process. And I was ve then very much um, interested in like, what does this first like supposedly living Frankensteinian monster look like? And, and that's, that's how I got interested in, in, in connecting to the, to the scientist and trying to convince him to send me his, his uh, cells. But interestingly, for your new book, you organized an interview with him. Could you tell us how his research became a source of inspiration or, or maybe just give us some hints about your discussion with him? If you think about me, I'm, I'm a kind of like German artist. Um, I'm in, in the tradition of, um, of the culture of the country that I live in. And um, one, one thing that strongly influenced our thinking here uh, is the, um, the anti-Nazification and the reaction towards um, like Nazi Germany. And the Nazis, they actually, they had this thing where they were talking about like designing or like um, defining the qualities of the perfect life to the perfect Aryan human being and to make um, a hierarchy of um, quality life and less quality life. And um, so one potential um, outcome of this genetic research could be to create the perfect baby to create a catalog for rich people to order their baby just or design their baby according to their um, taste um, like no diseases blue blue eyes black eyes whatever kind of like hair muscular non-muscular whatever and and clearly i was very suspicious about that research so um, that was my first initial um, attitude i was engaging with um, the research but i must say like after like three years now um, dealing with this and also talking to craig venter it's it's become a little bit blurry um, and also if you think about the current pandemic and our problems i mean these technologies and these um, scientific scientific discoveries they always they are always two-sided they have the potential um, they could have the potential also to find a cure for the virus um, and 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 to um, to be good for human health but they could also flip and be um, something like a bad weapon and 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 so i think what is very important for us is to develop um, a culture of like how to use these new tools that we are inventing as um, as a society does the research uh, that leads to breakthrough like Craig Venter's like synthetic cells have for you any similar similarities to art maybe in the sense of biofact um, no, no clearly I mean this is uh, this is exactly um, how I look at art or like how I um, I mean I'm not I'm not so interested in the idea of the artist being like uh, the the genius and and the artwork being artwork being something that is done by a person like a person that does something extraordinary that then all the rest of the society has to worship but I'm I'm more kind of like interested in this idea like this philosophical idea like why do we look at things that we 
do ourselves like so so why do we call like something that a human hand made why do we call this artificial and why do we call the tree outside and the leaves why do we call that natural and and what is the the need of this and what is the meaning of this and and there i see a strong connection to the scientist because uh, clearly craig venter in his first frankensteinian monster or like his first living artificial art form like uh, art form <laughs> life form actually He recreated a cell which is 99% similar to the original cell. He just copied a cell that was already existing before changing it. And um, at that point, you would ask yourself, so what is the difference between the thing that if they if two things are very much alike, like what is the difference between the thing that the human interacted with and the thing that came from nature itself? So relation between uh, artificial and natural, I I see in your work actually a continuation of this uh, research process as well uh, in the sense of like how artificial intelligence could rebuild nature. In one of your last series uh, entitled Jungle Memory, uh, you displayed for the first time, I think it was when you received the Goslar Kaisering Fellowship, right? You questioned even the carbon footprint of your artistic practice by exhibiting amongst other like photographs of forests which were generated by artificial intelligence. Could you explain what kind of emissions you were measuring and how you presented this visually? Like you said, um, I started off with the question, the same question um, from before, like the liminal border between artificial and natural. And um, I was very much interested in what kind of image or what kind of like vision this artificial intelligence would at the end present to me after uh, feeding it different uh, like a large archives of uh, forests um, that I created myself um, in the summer of 2019. And so I was mainly interested in this kind of like philosophical idea, um, still looking at myself as being somebody very much like also authentically ecologically motivated. So like always in looking at yourself as trying like trying to do something good trying to to save the chicken trying to save um, the flies trying to save the world trying to be more ecological i haven't been flying since uh, 2017 and but in this work somehow i had a blind spot and this blind spot was then discovered by dan lockhorst uh, who is the programmer that i worked with in one night shift shortly before the opening he asked me because we had at the time five different Amazon cloud computers computing and calculating um, this artificial image of nature or like of forests. He was asking me, hey, Andreas, so nice to sit out here and talk with you about ecology and all these things. But have you ever thought about like how much energy we blasted out into the air um, <laughs> at this very mo moment until here? And I thought, no, it's, it can't be so much. I mean, look, this is just a computer and a screen. And uh, yeah, I don't think it's going to be much. And then he sat down and made a calculation and I... I was almost like falling down the balcony there because it was exactly the opposite of my intention. I, we just discovered that this artificial intelligence is actually using a lot of um, energy. And um, it was it was altogether getting pretty close to like what average German person would use in a year just for one art project. And this became so prominent and so um, contradictional to my intentions that I had to incorporate this into the artwork and kind of like talk about this implicit contradiction um, of myself interestingly and i will uh, maybe come back 
and just introduce this question before everything because I think it might be useful for the listeners to understand like what kind of forest this artificial intelligence is using. So that is, uh, I mean, like when you make like this kind of bridge like between artificial and natural synthetic and organic you also refer to an artificial nature and in your series jungle memory instead of presenting photographs of forests you let ai generate images of forest could you tell us more about this process which kind of images you use for to feed this ai mm -hmm. Yeah, I went, I went to two, um, in quotation marks, like local European forests, um, and they were not the same. So one was the Hamba forest, uh, which is um, a little forest um, of a few hectares, not so big, that has been strongly in German politics in, until the end of uh, 2019, because there were activists living in, or maybe still are activists living in tree houses and fighting um, against the German energy producer RWE, who uh, basically wanted to access the coal underneath this forest. The other forest is, um, um, is a forest in Poland, um, which is regarded as being the last rural or the last kind of like European jungle that we have. And I thought it was very interesting to kind of, of course, um, to be at both places, um, but also then to um, discover um, the, the differences and the similarities in, in between the two of them. Became mutual. Irreconcilable, perceptual. Paradoxes were folded into ankle and shadow. Civilizations of conflicting desires and needs. Negated each other in collision. Coagulating and then ossifying into collective will. Shockwaves of psychological clarity emanated across the planet. Individuality is isolation. A sublime neurochemical satiation spread, saturating physical and emotional need. Billions of heartbeats slowed into synchronicity. The atmospheric air pressure expanded and contracted alongside tidal breath. Metabolism adjusted to the new conditions of being. In a sense, so this AI generates images of forest as if there were perhaps uh, no more real forests, but also perhaps uh, no more photographers. I, I asked Egor Kraft in a previous podcast how far AI could replace the artist by becoming the author. Uh, what will be your stance on that? I'm not afraid of um, AI becoming an artist. Um, I'm, I'm not afraid of AI becoming an author. Um, I think the the quality of an artwork is not defined by like who is the artist or like mm, by the fetish about um, the the artist genius. I think a good artwork is a good artwork. So if a if a fly can make a good artwork, or if a bacteria can make a good artwork, or if a human can be a, uh, make a good artwork, or an AI can good, make a good artwork, I think this doesn't shouldn't shouldn't matter. Like we should judge the quality of the artwork at the end but in, in one of, uh, of of the works you presented with uh, this series jungle memory is called side sign of life 
and we can recognize several patterns used by previous generation of ecological and conceptual artists or authors, so to say. I, I think particularly uh, of the beech tree seeds uh, you put under a frame and of the infographics displayed on the glass of those frames. Uh, it reminds me of works by artists from Arte Povera, like Penone and conceptual works of Onsake. And I was asking myself, to, to what extent were you inspired by those artists? I'm, I'm surely more inspired or more influenced by um, Hans Hake than I am by Arte Povera. It just happens that I didn't have a period in my life where I were strongly, was strongly researching about Arte Povera. I just remember being in a museum once when I was a student uh, again with uh, Julien Chayer and he was explaining me about them very passionately. But um, Hans Hake actually I met in person in New York um, and I was already very much impressed by his personality and then um, my girlfriend actually is researching about Hans Hake and um, she explained me a lot about um, his artworks and also the explicit um, um, authentic um, uh, motivation to um, to also display contradictions in society and um, early um, ecological problems like um, like chemicals in Germany getting into rivers in, in the 70s and 80s. And I, and I think this, is, this has been impressing for me. But you, you, you mentioned before, and maybe uh, coming back to the current situation, that you were now not flying anymore. So I think your meeting with Ansake was previously to this uh, this uh, choice but you can for instance uh, now fly to the Yokohama Triennale where you you will be presenting a large-scale project and I was asking myself how do you experience a situation like that how do you do because uh, it might be way more sustainable when we could continue uh, to go in this direction actually before um it was a huge fuss like before the coronavirus um, um, and I I tried to kind of like please this urge of um, of um, having the artist on the spot or like um, also because it's a very complicated installation that we're building there again with algae um, which is um, very much also connected to experience and to um, like a, a certain level of expertise to how, how to deal with the algaes. Um, I, I, I was very afraid of how can I not go there and still be able to make this artwork happen. And um, long time, actually, we thought that I should go there by Trans-Siberian Railway, but actually researching on that, on the carbon footprint of the Trans-Siberian Railway, because you can't really, you don't have like reliable figures for like how much carbon dioxide would the ferry produce that is going between Russia and uh, Japan, or like what kind of train is connected to a Trans-Siberian Railway. It could be that it would be half, like saving half of the carbon footprint or like saving 10% or like less or more. And it was very ambiguous. And um, now actually, thankfully, we all decided that I can stay in Germany. The algae travel via FedEx. And um, just previously today, actually, we had a Skype meeting and I was teaching the curator how to deal with the algae, how to dilute them, how to be sterile in working with them. And, and I'm very excited for this experiment because this, this is actually, for me, it would be very rewarding to experience that my artwork can travel disconnected from me as an artist, being there as a person, but also disconnected from objects and more like kind of like translating 
manuals or routines or like habits or um, ideas to a different place yeah but we we experiment right now like with uh, this lockdown that uh, personal uh, emissions are only a tiny bit of the of the world emissions uh, and the art industry is part of this uh, global industry which uh, pollutes the, the world globally. Uh, for you, how could the artwork world become uh, more sustainable? I think um, exactly through like this process that we're going through, um, because we're actually discovering that, um, that now Germany is achieving its climate goals. And it's not, it's not only because we have uh, much more green energy now or we have new technologies. It's just a cultural change. It's just um, about like um, producing and consuming and emitting less. Um, now it's um, it is probably for for a bad reason, and but we have to find cultural tools and cultural ways to avoid to fly to each opening and to avoid to to have each artwork like ha like the fetish of the original. Like um, we can also like like even a photograph can be produced at the at the other end of the world by a printer and by a framer and. It doesn't have to be put into a transportation box and then flown um, to the other end of the world. Retract. 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 Brains. Liquefy. Beneath billions of small gelatinous skulls, the plasma computer. Dense networks. Dense networks. What were once neurons in constant operation. The sole purpose. The sole purpose of material continuity. Descend into quantum space. Botanical extensions follow. Time is damned into simulation. Experience is status Large regions of the lithosphere become coated in thick layers of hyper-intelligent alluvial slime. The system's isentropic efficiency achieves ideal conditions. And solar energy is Yeah, interestingly, you, you, you were as well highlighting the fact that you are n not like the single author. And uh, I remember I was uh, looking at, well, watching um, a discussion between like Ansoul Echobrist and Olafur Eliasson. And Olafur Eliasson was uh, presenting your new book. Uh, and uh, he, he was uh, he was stressing the fact that you chose like uh, several authors from different fields, and it's it's true that it's striking to see cult uh, cultural scientists, theoreticians, architects, biologists, and so on. Could you tell us a bit more about how this trans transdisciplinarity help you in your work? No, I think uh, I mean it comes from I'm a, I'm a very curious person, and I and I and I really like to ask questions and I like to think about answers and get many answers and different answers and having um, uh, the viewpoint not only of one perspective but a polyperspective viewpoint and 
Um, that's maybe also why um, I tend to work with uh, people from different disciplines. And I really enjoy to work with people who know more than I am or like uh, who, are, um, who can do things that I can't do myself. Because I think this is uh, at the end joining forces and maybe being able to, um, to make something, I hope, more relevant or more interesting than if you just do something alone. Wow, thank you so much, Andreas. It was totally uplifting. Thank you. <laughs> Hear me, luminescent oceans. Are the soul indicator of their continued dual operation? A continuous active remembrance. And the navigation of spaceships earth away from a waning sun to highlight that you can find details and images of all of the pieces we have discussed today on our website art-werk.ch as well as a summary of our discussion. I would like to thank Tyler Friedman for the soundtrack that was used in this episode, Lara Katzauer for the music, Sophie Olos for the copy editing and Philippe Indal for the editing and for managing the Artwerk CH Instagram account, where you also find images of all of the installations we talk about today. <laughs>